This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. This is our 10th and final lecture in this series of classes on contemporary theological issues. Tonight I don't have a handout. So you're probably saying, well, that's because you were lazy and you just didn't do one. That's not it at all. You're right, I didn't do one. But I just want you to listen tonight. If something particularly strikes you as interesting, by all means, write it down. But I hope you'll just sit and listen. Because I'd like tonight to do just a couple things. First, I did receive a couple questions, and I plan to briefly address them and give you my opinion on those questions. For those of you that weren't here last week, I'd asked if anybody had a question that we didn't cover, by all means, email it to me. So I got a couple. Secondly, I would like to provide what I think I would call, it's not going to be very thorough and it's not going to be exhaustive, what I would call a state of the church. And and if you haven't been in this class, please know how I've been using that word church for uh, for for the course. I'm talking about what we would call the church at large, what we would call of like faith. So not Good News Baptist Church as an autonomous local church, but the church as the body of Christ. And I'd like to give what I would call tonight a state of the church. You know, kind of like when the president provides a state of the union address, but similarly, I'd like to provide my perspective of where I believe the church is in the 21st century. Now, you'll recall that we began this course with the bold task of isolating and confronting the most influential theological issues facing the church today. Now, remember, we purposely used the word contemporary because it implies that those issues of today are not necessarily those that have been faced throughout history in the past. Nor were we necessarily, they're not going to be the most important issues the church is going to face in the future. Assuming we have a future. The issue we discussed over this class are not timeless issues. They're merely the threats to our churches today. We then separated the course into two parts. We began with some introductory material on how and why we think and how we know the things we think we know. We laid the foundation for how we develop or how we should develop beliefs about issues, how we stand on issues or the sides, if we could call them that, we take on an issue. Then the first half of the course covered issues that are occurring within churches, specifically churches that we consider like ours. Conservative Baptist churches as a whole, maybe even independent fundamental Baptist churches specifically. So we covered philosophy and vain deceit, worldview and critical thinking. We then moved to the wiles of the devil, spiritual warfare and Satan's devices, and then discussed a glorious church, the Pauline epistles and the new perspective on Paul. Perilous times came next, came next, history and eschatology. And sometimes when we, we looked at that class, sometimes we seem to have an overly romantic view of the past. Sometimes we have a, this disdain for the present and an unbiblical understanding of the future. We then transitioned to the second half of the course, and after the lecture tossed to and fro, postmodern theological relativism, we considered the th- theological issues that might be attacking from outside the church. 
The first half, we dealt with issues of the pulpit, and the second, we dealt with issues from the pew. And in that second half, we did consider male and female, created he them, sexuality, gender, and marriage. And then we talked about rendering unto Caesar, discerning civic duty and civil disobedience. And then pro-choice, pro-birth, and pro-life under the topic without natural affection. To take us up to last week where we talked about seducers and evil men, how Christians should engage social media. Certainly there were topics we could have discussed, like the theological issues of identity politics or the neo-IFB, or Independent Fundamental Baptist Movement, the neo-IFB movement, or the theology of busy lives, where ministries, programs, and services, even within our very church, are actually keeping us from worship. We're like Martha, cumbered about with so much service, but neglecting the good, the good parts. Actually, I think this is the reason we're losing our next generation. We're really burning them out. There are many things we could talk about, but this evening we wrap a bow on our lectures and conclude with the state of the church of the 21st century. Now we'll get to that, but I want to first address one question I did receive. The question is as follows, how do you stay current on contemporary issues? Well, I'm going to tell you what works for me. This may not necessarily work for you, but I have found three avenues for getting information, really four, and for considering where our church is and where it lies within our culture. First thing I do is I listen to how you all talk. Don't let that alarm you. I'm not eavesdropping. I listen to what I hear is being talked about at church. Then I listen to what I hear is being talked about at work. Then I listen to a particular news podcast, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And yes, I even scroll through Facebook. I'll speak briefly to how I address each one. First, I listen to what is being said by people in our own church. Again, this shouldn't scare you. It is not a negative thing. However, I will say that we do not do a very good job at hiding our opinion on things. We do wear our feelings on our sleeves. And that's okay. I don't think it's wrong. We have a church with members who are passionate about things. While we must be careful that we are passionate about the right things, but I find it refreshing that there are those who care about our world, our nation, our city, and this church. So as I engage in conversation, it does not take long to gather where someone stands on an issue. Now, for the most part, we stand pretty much together. And while we might discuss a topic or engage in conversation about an issue, I think we need to be careful that we do not hold someone to everything they say in a conversation. This may seem counterintuitive. Let me explain. Often church conversations are, come out of a passion response. And we say things, I know I do, that are just not always fleshed out. They're not always thought through. Take the COVID debacle. That's what I'm going to call it over the past years for an example. There were some who were against masks before they were for them, before they were against them again. There were some who determined they would never get the vaccine and got it. There were some who blamed China for the virus and then blamed our own country for a conspiracy. 
There were those who militantly social distanced at first, but even during some of the greatest peaks and waves of the pandemic, they didn't social distance because it found it wasn't helpful. Then maybe you're like me, and though you disdain most everything about COVID, and are even tired of hearing illustrations like this that refer to it, you wish you could keep some of those things that we got better at, like washing our hands, limiting how much handshaking we do, backing off, passing things around, just to shed germs. We have flip-flopped on so many things. But this is where grace is necessary. A lot of times we use conversations in this environment, which should be a safe environment to talk about things like this, such as our church, to address those things that we are really, just like America, we're trying to figure it out, but we look at it through our lens of theology, through our Christian worldview. But one of the things I gauge for, so one of the things I gauge for contemporary issues is what is being addressed and discussed at church. It's good to have those conversations, isn't it, Mike? We have some good ones. The second thing is, what is being discussed at work? This is helpful to me because it's a completely different environment than church. I serve in the United States Navy, and I serve aboard a naval vessel of over 1,000 sailors and Marines. This affords me the opportunity to leave the confines of the walls of the church and hear what a secular world is saying in real time. I think as Christians, we fail to think critically because we're never, we are rarely critiqued for our thinking. As a Navy chaplain, as an officer, as a leader, I not only need to think, but I need to provide reasons for why I think, why I do. The Bible tells us to be in the world, but not of the world. So often Christians refuse to be in the world. We enjoy either the shelter of the church and never venture out of our homes, or if we do, we actually do not engage with the culture around us. We hide our lamps under bushels, buying into what the culture tells us, that religion's just a private matter. We must get this out of our mindset, and we must remind ourselves that our relationship with Christ must influence or impact every component of our lives. I am not a naval officer who happens to be a Christian. I am first and foremost a disciple of Jesus Christ who happens to serve in the United States Navy. Do you engage with those people you work with? Do you listen? Do you listen to what they are saying and what they're talking about? These conversations, when done in love, when you speak the truth in love, are what build bridges and relationships that lead to evangelism. We will deal with this a little more when it comes to the second question I was asked. But let's move to the third avenue. I listen to a daily podcast of news. Now, this is by no means an endorsement of any particular podcast, but I have found that the podcast, The World and Everything in It, to be an exceptionally produced podcast for news. The world and everything in it delivers the essential headlines, field reporting, interviews, and expert analysis every weekday. Their original coverage, such as weekly overview of the Supreme Court cases, biblical cultural analysis, and key international stories are done so, as their closing suggests on each podcast, their world's mission is biblically objective journalism that informs, 
educates, and inspires. So I listen to this podcast each morning on my way to work, and I hear a very balanced perspective on the news. My kids have their own version called World Watch. It's today's news delivered in 10-minute videos designed for younger viewers to help them grow into humans equipped with news literacy and biblical discernment. So I'm careful about what news my children watch, but I want them to know that there is a world out there and they have to learn to engage it biblically. Now, a podcast may not work for you. Before the rise of podcasts, I would watch the evening news. That's a lie. I, couldn't st- I didn't watch the evening news. I just, in the evening, I would watch news. <laughs> but I would do it in such a way that I never consistently heard one ideology. I would shift from Fox News to CNN to MSNBC. I can watch Tucker Carlson and then shift to Rachel Maddow and completely disagree with both. But as I would watch and listen to their commentary, I could begin to formulate the thoughts and arguments and opinions of two very polar sides of an argument. This helps me navigate. This brings me to my fourth and final avenue. I do look at Facebook. Now, this one can be dangerous. It is dangerous not because of the content necessarily, but how that content is fed to you or given to you. Consider this explanation from a fairly liberal magazine as it describes the Facebook algorithm. This isn't isn't my words. Every time you open Facebook, one of the world's most influential, controversial, and misunderstood algorithms springs into action. It scans and collects everything posted in the past week by each of your friends. Everyone you follow, each group you belong to, and every Facebook page you've liked. For the average Facebook user, that's more than 1,500 posts. If you have several hundred friends, it could be as many as 10,000. Then according to a closely guarded and constantly shifting formula, Facebook's newsfeed algorithm ranks them all in what it believes to be the precise order of how likely you are to find each post worthwhile. Most users will only ever see the top few hundred posts. So when you click on a person's status, a news link, a story, you are feeding an algorithm. There are certain people's Facebook status that seem to always be at the top of my feed because I accidentally opened their status. Now, I think some people just complain a whole lot more than others. But really, it's what Facebook thinks I want to see. But here is where Facebook is beneficial. If you can resist clicking on everything you see, you can see... If you can resist clicking on everything you you see, you can see what is, in general, being discussed. And why is that important? Now, it's not an airtight truth. Often, headlines are simply meant to shock you into clicking on them. The problem is sometimes we just read the headline, and then we form an opinion of what that article has to say. And then we pass that on to someone else. Sensational headlines, clickbait, and just fake news can be avoided if you do not depend on social media to give you all your news. Here's an example. Do you remember last September? This headline. you got to show them this one. I think we're there. There you go. Beaumont, Texas. 
An employee of the Jefferson County morgue died this morning after being accidentally cremated by one of his co-workers. According to the Beaumont Police Department, 48-year-old Henry Paul Johnson decided to take a nap on a stretcher after working for 16 hours straight. While he was sleeping, another employee mistook him for the corpse of a 52-year-old car accident victim and carried him to the crematory. Before anybody could notice the mistake, he had already been exposed to temperatures ranging between 1,400 and 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, and he was reduced to ashes. Jenna Davis, one of Henry Johnson's co-workers, says she heard him scream for about 15 seconds after the crematory was activated. At first, we didn't understand where the sound was coming from. Then we realized what was happening, and it was too late. We shut down the heating system, but he was already dead. Mrs. Davis claims that the young co-worker that caused the accident was a new employee, had forgotten to check for the toe tag to make sure he had the right body. Jenna, this, have you no heart? Jenna Davis says she heard the victim scream in agony, filing criminal charges against the employee who caused his death. The young man could possibly be accused of criminal negligence causing death. Whew. That's a serious story. Be careful where you nap. The problem is this story's false. <laughs> the news, go to the next slide, the news was given by the Weekly Inquirer and shared by some on social media, but the Weekly Inquirer is a satire site. Look at their tagline. You can't hardly read it. Where facts don't matter. <laughs> Still, I got this one on my Facebook. It was fed to me by people saying, can you believe this? I think my parents sent it to me. <laughs> so many forward this story. And they are meant to make you laugh sometimes. <laughs> sometimes they're so true or so close to truth, it's, it's scary. But I still do go through and look what people are talking about and what people are posting to see what is trending and what is current. This takes some discernment, patience, and a whole lot of self-control not to get sucked into it. I'm not always successful. But I do think social media can serve some purpose. So I listen to what is being said by Christians here at church, what is said by secular, the secular world at work, what is being said on formal news outlets, and what is being said on social media. And I have other sources that I go to and look at. I, I am on a ship. I'm in the military. We have an intel officer who provides us the updates of what's going on in Ukraine. And I listen to those things. I put it all together and paint a picture of current events, cultural trends, and even, yes, contemporary theological issues. Not one is the primary source. I don't just, everything we say in here doesn't tell me this is what's important in the world. What sailors talk about does not dictate the most important things that, are, that, are, that I need to be looking at. They all provide a piece of the pie. And occasionally, I get it wrong and put too much salt or too much of one ingredient into that pie, and it tastes awful. But we put it together. So let me just say, while I'm talking about piecemeal information, I also find that there are some other great places to get information. These are not endorsements by any means. And I appeal to your Christian discernment. Sometimes I feel we teach and preach that you have to accept everyone's opinion in entirety or reject them wholesale. And I disagree. I can listen to Albert Moeller's The Briefing and not endorse his theology. 
Nevertheless, I do find the briefing to be a great resource for addressing contemporary issues from a biblical worldview. The same with John MacArthur, John Piper, John Stone Street's Breakpoint podcast, Tucker Carlson, Rachel Maddow, Mark Levin, Sean Hannity. Just be careful. If you're listening for an opinion on the times, that's one thing. If you are listening to get their theological views, I caution you. So while we're talking podcasts, there is one I think you will enjoy and will challenge you from a biblical perspective. It is certainly always theologically sound, and it does address issues we face every day. And that's Pastor Brown's podcast, Exempla. Using his passion for good storytelling with an eternal purpose, Pastor Brown captures the imagination and makes us think. If you haven't listened, you should take time to find out what Exempla is and why Pastor Brown thinks God wants us to use stories to bring each other face-to-face -face with the truth in thought-provoking and compelling ways. He will get you to think and do it in an entertaining way. And I think if you listen to who the voices are on there, they are people close to you. Isn't that right, Matt Armstrong? I mean, John the Baptist. Thank you back there. Yeah. Exempla. It's a podcast Pastor Brown has done, and it is done exceptionally. So let's move to the next question. I want to ask the, this. I was asked this question. Can you give three brief bullets on things we can do in, sec, in a secular world to turn a conversation to spiritual things, or at least keep it in front of our peers, keep in front of our peers the fact that we do have a relationship with Christ? This is a great question. First, no, I can't give you anything brief. I rarely do. <laughs> but I do think that I can give you some ideas. Now, I do not think I have it completely figured out. I'm like most of you where I work in a secular environment. Even though I do wear a cross on my collar, I am not so naive to think that everyone understands what that cross means even where I work. To some, I'm a good luck charm. Hey, Chaps is here, so God must be with us now. To others, I'm the guy who can get them stuff. Hey, Chaps, pray we have good weather, because we're going to have a good party this weekend. <laughs> Rarely are those who see the cross on the collar and connect it to substitutionary atonement for sin. But I know you also are in similar situations. Your coworkers. They may know you go to church. They might even know you don't curse, you don't drink, you don't gamble. You're different. They just don't know why. To this difference, I appreciate how my parents raised us. They understood the need to be set apart and different from the world, to be separated from the world. But my dad used to say he wanted to raise children who were different, not weird. Sometimes I think Christians view weirdness as a badge of honor. Allow the gospel to separate you. That should be sufficient. So the first bullet I recommend is to be relevant and real. Now, know the environment in which you work at and be able to relate to it. I remember a pastor once preached that if you heard profanity at work, you should confront that person and tell them, I will not tolerate you cursing in my presence. If I did that, I'd be spending my entire day not tolerating anyone, tolerating anyone I work with. Have you heard the saying, they curse like a sailor? 
that's literally where I work. There's a reason people say that, and I witness it firsthand. But I do address those things, though, using tools that I have at my availability. As an officer, talk about professionalism, character, integrity, hallmarks of military service. Profanity should not be the only thing that defines our speech. So I talked to him about that. Not, if you do this, you need to leave my presence. I could tell that pastor had probably not worked outside of the church very much. It's a world out there, and it will hit you in the face. I am to be salt. But too much salt can really make things bitter. The right amount of salt can make things better. So I try to find ways using the tools I have and that they recognize to and that they can recognize that people that I work with can also recognize to insert morality into the equation. Sometimes that is simply done by not doing things or going to places. We can be different. We don't have to be weird. The second bullet would be to know your job and perform it well. Often we think that our message will only be more convincing. Our message will be more conv- always more convincing than our performance. And I'm not sure this is true. Be the very best at what you do. Demonstrate that you can do your job and you can do it well. But both of these are performance-based. You can be relevant and you can do very, your job very well, but the gospel requires some sort of confrontation. Now, I don't mean this to be an uncharitable, mean-spirit confrontation, but at some point you must confront with the gospel. This requires words to be used. So I think we need to find those touch points where we can speak to the gospel. And I think this comes in two ways. There's the passive way and there's an active way. It is not wrong to be passive by saying things in general like, you know, God has really blessed me. Or to your coworker, hey, I'm praying for you. Or praise God for doing this or providing that. These are passive actions where you're using words to point their attentions towards your God. But you can also be more active about it. I think it is helpful to find those things in your job that are unmistakably things that are about God. For me, just as an example, as a chaplain, I like to use history. Each morning we have meetings that I attend. And I like to, in those meetings, to share a this date in history. I use these times to talk about how God has worked in history. Use those times for strategic evangelism, to share how God has worked in history, and I tell them so. Another opportunity is one on one counseling that I do to find those things that sound theological, sound theological, things like ethics, morality, and the issues of life, and then I try to reframe them for them. For example, when a sailor says, Chaps, I don't want to be on this ship anymore. I try to reframe it and ask, why are you here in the first place? It does not take long to get it to a more existential discussion of our existence on this, in this world, which inevitably leads to talking about spiritual things. Those are just my examples. Find what works in your job, those things that you can talk about 
that relate to God. If you work with numbers, you could talk about order. You could talk about rules. And how God has created a universe with order and rules. If you have any kind of job that has any kind of rules and things, these are things, if you're communicating and talking to people, find those things that will help you point them to Christ. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means all your places of employment belong to him. Even your job has touch points that if recognized will speak, even preach truths about God. So be relevant and real. Be salt of the earth. Perform your job well and be an example of what right looks like. And finally, use your words to speak about him. Confess him before men. So this should answer the questions I've received. Now, for just a few moments, I'd like to address the state of the church. Has anybody here ever read the book Radical by David Platt? Anybody? All right. How about the book Crazy Love by Francis Chan? Anybody read that one? I've read both of them. They're not bad books. But to me, they seem to carry the same modus operandi, an MO that is fairly similar to most self-help or inspirational books, or in this case of radical and crazy love, religious books. Now, I'm not here to discuss either of these two books. I have read them, and like I said, they're, they're pretty good. I simply draw your attention to the MO of the, any book that is endeavoring to market a concept or a program. It is an MO that give, goes something like this. We, Christians, or indiv as individuals, or Christians in a church, or even our churches in general, we weren't getting it. But then, after much prayer and study, we got it. And now, here's a book to tell you how you can get it, too. What is it? Doesn't really matter. But we got it. And we're going to give it to you. Buy our book. I'm simply speaking to the idea that we are prone to be drawn to new and perceived, newly perceived ideas. Life-altering realizations. Spiritual epiphanies. And the faster we can get to those ideas, realizations, or epiphanies into a book, a podcast, a TED Talk, the quicker we can help the church and perhaps even make a little cash on the side. Forgive me if I sound a bit jaded, but I wonder if we are too quick to market ecclesiastical concepts, sometimes even really good ones, to the point that our faith looks more like a gimmicky religion and not a glorious relationship with the Creator. As Baptists, I believe we cherish, still cherish, sola scriptura. The scripture alone. And I think as Baptists we have not forgotten, or at least not when we pause and truly contemplate how we do ministry, that the Bible is our sole guide for faith and practice. So perhaps we are, we are not easily swayed by the new shiny object that may appear on the market but doesn't have any staying power. We know that there is no new thing under the sun. So we constantly return to the book that has guided our faith and practice. So I do, believe, I do believe the 21st century church, or at least the ones we would consider of like faith, is doing well at their commitment to the Bible. Sure, we have had our hiccups and heated debates over which version and 
Even that, I think, has actually been healthy for us. Though some have been less than charitable, I do appreciate the passion churches have for wanting to be sure we have God's word and we know we have it. But though we want to have it, and we want to know it, I think we've actually dropped the ball in what we do with it. It may be a good at this point to explain my perspective. I've already mentioned I'm a Navy chaplain. So I'm coming from the perspective of a ministry to a military culture that is unchurched and, for all practical purposes, biblically illiterate. A culture where more than one-third claim no religious preference. A culture where 75% see the Bible and science as contradictory to each other. Yet, 30% put equal value to both of them. This is because it's a culture that is not necessarily atheistic or secular or God-hating, as some would have you to believe. It is a postmodern culture defined by relativity that prefers to be described as spiritual but not religious. And while we may applaud that on the surface, as you dive deeper, it's not the casting off of religious shackles for the joyous relationship that we understand. Spirituality is preferred because it casts off religious objectivism for the spiritual subjectivism, where they can choose what is right and wrong as everyone can do what's right in their own eyes. That's the perspective I'm coming from the United States military. So while the church does have a clear love and devotion for Scripture, we are not as clearly loving and devoted to the truth that's being taught in the Scripture. And I think this is because this is where I feel we fail to study it as we should. This, to me, is what we know as biblical discipleship. Specifically, I think we need to get away from the idea that discipleship can be separated from some sort of pedagogical method or some sort of teaching. Discipleship is teaching. Now, teaching can come in a variety of methods. It may be a demonstration, a lecture, or it could even be collaborative. For example, Jesus imparted knowledge to us in how he expected us to live. 1 Peter 2.21 is a great example of the demonstrative method of teaching. For, hereunto, for even hereunto were ye called, because why? Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. That's demonstration. But the Bible also has lecture method. Micah 6, 8. He showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. This is a lecture, an instruction. We are being told, we're given what to do. It's being told to us. It's not an example. It's a, it's a command. We are to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. That is what the Lord requires of us. And when Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 15, whom do you say that I am? There was collaboration amongst the disciples. One responded and said, you're John the Baptist. Some say you're John the Baptist. Another Elisha. Another Jeremiah. And then Jesus says, oh, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter said, you are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. Jesus built on that acknowledgement, moving from the known to the unknown, as he taught them then about his church. The purpose of teaching is to impart knowledge. Rational, reasonable, epistemic information with the purpose of exercising the mind so that we can grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. But here's my frustration for how churches are doing this, how they're handling discipleship or teaching. Actually, it's two frustrations, and they may seem antithetical to each other, although I assure you they are not. The first frustration is we do not teach in such a way as to use language that is accessible to the unbeliever. We teach above them, expecting them to come into our churches already knowing fundamental things about the Bible, or even that there is the Word of God in existence. They don't know these things. We preach and teach with platitudes like, just give your heart to Jesus. Or use words like, repent or redemption. Those are all biblical words and we should not get rid of them. But we talk about inerrancy or inspiration, and these are terms completely foreign to them. At best, they're foreign to them. At worst, there's other religions that have redefined them. Seldom are we teaching the Word of God as we take them from the known to the unknown. We have to explain what repentance means. We can't just tell them, repent. They don't know what that means. I'm not saying we tell them, you don't have to do it. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm telling you, we have to teach. Seldom are we teaching the Word of God as we take them from the known to the unknown. I'm not simply talking about an, an accessible Bible version here. Now, you might say, they cannot know them because those things are spiritually discerned. They are the natural man. They can't know these things. And this is true. They cannot understand them apart from the Holy Spirit. But my point is, we might as well be speaking in a foreign language to them. So while my first frustration is how we handle unbelievers, my second frustration is with what the way we are teaching believers. Even after conversion, we continue to use language that uses vocabulary and syntax that the person in the pew does eventually begin to recognize because we use it so often, but they never really understand it. We are content with them regurgitating spiritual truth, but we never require them to articulate it for themselves. The writer of Hebrews warned of this. For when, the time, for, for when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become as such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth unto them that are full age, even those, listen, who by reason of use have their sensor, senses exercised to discern both good and and evil. Your discernment should grow the more you study the Bible. So the state of our church is that we have derailed discipleship. We have derailed it see, because we cease to teach, to learn, or both. We're not accessible to the biblically illiterate, and we're not holding each other accountable to learning and understanding the Word of God and what it has to say. Teaching is paramount to proper discipleship. Paul mentored Timothy like this. Thou therefore, my son, 
Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strife. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men apt to teach. You want to reproduce in other Christians, you have, we have to build teachers. If you are getting nothing from this lecture this evening, just get this. Churches must reestablish the priority of teaching in their ministries. Because teaching, discipleship, depends on teaching. The conveying of knowledge from one person to another, the act of instruction either in lecture, such as in a Sunday school, a sermon, or even in one-on-one -on -one conversation, or in demonstration, taking someone with you to go on visitation and showing them, or just spending time with that new believer and showing them what the Word of God looks like as it's exercised. Or collaboration, attending a prayer breakfast, or coming to a church work day where you're with fellow believers and the conversations are happening where we're teaching each other. All are part of the most important component of discipleship, teaching. Churches place too much emphasis, though, on products and programs. One author explained it this way. Discipleship isn't a program or an event. It's a way of life. It's not for a limited time, but for our whole life. Discipleship isn't for beginners alone. It's for all believers, for every day of their life. Discipleship isn't just one of the things the church does. It is what the church does. Instead of emphasizing products and programs, the church must focus on the process of discipleship. Both the church and the new believer are mutually responsible for discipleship. Discipleship is a means to an end. It's not an end in and of itself. John MacArthur says this about discipleship. Discipleship entails a life of total self-denial, a humble disposition towards others, a wholehearted devotion to the Lord alone, a willingness to obey His commands and everything, an eagerness to sense Him even in His absence, and a motivation that comes from knowing He is well-pleased. Only through this process of discipleship, self-denial, humility, devotion, willful obedience, and eagerness to serve, will the church understand the purpose of discipleship. Perhaps no better articulation of this purpose can be found than what we have in the Great Commission. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28? Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them what? Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. What is the purpose of discipleship? To teach converts to observe all the commandments. Tom Rayner, who is sort of a sort of subject matter expert on church growth, said, Thriving churches have the Great Commission as the centerpiece of their vision, while dying churches have forgotten the clear command of Christ. What is the command? Teach. So the responsibility of discipleship is to teach. God gave our churches pastors and teachers. We are to teach and admonish each other and teach no other doctrine. But we are to teach. But we have developed an evangelize-only concept. Just tell people about Jesus. That's all that's important. We aren't teaching unbelievers about Jesus. We're just telling them. We aren't teaching believers about Jesus. 
We're just expecting them to know now. But we need to regain the truth that discipleship begins at conversion. It is connected to repentance. And there went a great multitudes with him. And he turned and said, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's connected to repentance. It is contingent on a relationship. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Again, in Matthew 28, we read in verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. There's a relationship there. Sanctification begins with the only quantitative command the Christian ever receives after conversion. What do I mean by that? There's only one command that can be demonstrated after you are converted. It is baptism. 1 Peter 3, 20 verse through 21 says, Even baptism doth also now save us, not putting away the filth of the flesh. He doesn't say it's not saving you by washing away your sins, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. God gave you a command, and you obey it. The first act of discipleship starts at conversion. I want to be baptized. If salvation does not breed a subsequent desire for sanctification, which implies obedience, we must ask, was it really a conversion? We should desire upon conversion to obey. This is why baptism is a crucial step in obedience. It demonstrates that you want to be a disciple. And every believer is responsible for discipleship. The Christian life is the discipled life and the discipling life. The true believer will have a desire to learn. The true believer will be demonstrative of their conversion. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. What is the fruit of the believer? It is, at least in part, demonstrative acknowledgement of their relationship. The convert must take responsibility for a desire to learn. So in conclusion, what's the status of the church? We're not making disciples. We may be making converts, maybe. We may be growing quantitatively, but we are stagnant. We are not growing qualitatively. We must grow, and that growth comes through teaching and learning. As A.W. Tozer once said, only a disciple can make a disciple. What does this growth look like? Well, it's when the student establishes his or her own spiritual disciplines. D.L. Moody once said, Church attendance is as vital to a disciple as a transfusion of rich, healthy blood to a sick man. When the student can, in return, edify the saints, and when the student can defend the faith with humility and reverence, ultimately when the student begins to also evangelize, that's when we begin to see growth. We need you to teach. Ultimately, what is the state of the church? We're not discipling well, and it is evident in that we are not learning. To me, this is the state of the church of the 21st century. It's not actually growing. And I know this sounds fairly pessimistic, 
So when we contemplate our world, I can see the reality of Jesus even posing what might be a jarring question that he asks. But as we consider our culture and our church in the culture, especially the American church, I think it is fair to look at the question Jesus asked. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? That's a fair question. Now, I know this passage has a prophetic doctrinal application, but it seems our trajectory is towards this demise of faith. But isn't this why? Even after John saw all that he did, after all the chaos of the last days was revealed to him, he saw that the future, what the future held, and he said, Even so, come Lord Jesus. He knew what the, true, the, meaning, of, what the meaning of Christ meant, of his return, it meant a lot of suffering would have to unfold in a great tribulation. But I think we can chime with him, in with him when he said, even so come, Lord Jesus. In the last days, perilous times will come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We will fight the wiles of the devil as we battle in spiritual warfare and Satan's devices. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We will wrestle with what it means to be a glorious church as we cherish the Pauline epistles and fight things like the new perspective on Paul. We will see perilous times as we look back at history and look forward to eschatology. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Some will be tossed to and fro as postmodern theological relativism grips our minds. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even though male and female created he them, there will be those who will be con continue to be confused over sexuality, gender, and marriage. We will question what should be rendered unto Caesar as we discern civic duty and civil disobedience. But even so, come, Lord Jesus. Our world will wholesale lose its natural affection as we argue for pro-choice, pro-birth, or pro-life. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And there will be seducers and evil men requiring Christians to determine how to engage social media. And there will be many more contemporary theological issues. But even we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. I appreciate you learning with me. I hope we'll continue to teach. And I hope we'll be able to struggle with the hard questions. Because that's what we need to do as we grow as disciples. Any thoughts or questions as we conclude this class, Contemporary Theological Issues. You have been... Yes, sir. Uh, what about the charismatic movement? I don't remember if you that. We did not? What would you like to know? <laughs> it does. It seems to be thriving. There is a... Uh, I'll, I'll just say it like this. I believe biblically, the biblical answer to that is there is a cessation of certain gifts. That uh, they have ceased... And I think 1 Corinthians 13 talks to that. that uh, so, and it all is in definitions of what is actual tongues. Uh, for example, uh, healings, another example. That uh, I think that uh, um, if you look at it, I, I'll try to make it very brief. If you look at those kind of things, for someone to speak in tongues, take that for example, that would have to be revelation. They're saying something that is divinely given to them, uh, according to them. And I believe our canon is closed. There is no new revelation. So that's my answer to the charismatic movement. However, I'll say this. There are some who believe that you must speak in tongues to be saved, and there are some who believe that you speak in tongues because you are saved. 
And I do think there is a theological difference to that. If you do anything to add to salvation, that's wrong. That's unbiblical. I think as Baptists, we often tend to say we do certain things because we are saved, that we may get to heaven and find out, why did you guys teach that? Uh, and so I think we'll be in heaven with some charismatics. And so uh, they'll find out, though, that they were wrong. <laughs> I think we'll all find out a lot of things. <laughs> Any others? Thank you so much for your patience. And uh, I appreciate you can always go back to the, to the classes if you felt you missed anything or you dozed off. Uh, and there are notes there uh, that I hope will I'll help you. And I do appreciate the conversations, and I appreciate your patience as we looked at these different issues. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time we've had over the last few weeks to look at these issues that are facing us. Lord, in everything, Lord, help us to be discerning so that we approach things not from opinion, but from the authority of the Word of God. Father, help us to do that. Father, I failed when we were praying earlier to mention Lenora Edwards' mom. I do ask that you would watch over her as she has uh, broken her hip. Lord, I pray that you would uh, be able to help her to minister to her mom, Lord, and I pray that you would comfort her mother, Lord, and I, and I pray that if it be your will, you bring her back to full health. Lord, be with her. Lord, bless us now as we leave. I pray that you watch over us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.